Hallelujah. Psalm 34, 1 reads, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Lord, we thank You that for everyone in Christ Jesus in this place today, these words are true of us. We sought You when You gave us, Lord, the ability to realize we were at the end of ourselves and our only hope was in You. And at that point, You delivered us from the ultimate of fears. As Hebrews says, we were captive all our lives to the fear of death until we were set free because of the eternal life promise in Jesus Christ's blood. Lord, these are the things we celebrate this morning and worship You for. I pray as we hear a testimony of Your goodness, Lord, applied to an individual heart, that it would awaken within us, Lord, more reasons, more overflowing joy and praise, and encouragement for those who might need it. If they are in a place in their life, Father, where they felt their own spiritual walk dry. Lord, if there are any here today or any who might listen in the future who do not know you, I pray that by the testimony, by the word of Aaron's testimony, even as his testimony is by the blood of the Lamb, that you would do a mighty work in conquering hearts for our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lamb who was slain might reap the reward of his sufferings. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. How's that sound? Test, test. It's on three. You can bring it up a little more than that. Test, test. Hear me pretty good? Okay. I'm not going to take too long today. Um, I'm not going to tell my whole life story or exploits. No, you can sit down. <laughs> um, and I want to keep it focused on salvation and the gospel um, so if you don't know me my name's Aaron I'm the worship leader here <laughs> and I grew up in Emily if you know where that is it's near here and my dad was the principal of the Christian school and the church that I grew up in in Emily and Ken and Joel, a lot of the other people here. We went there, grew up there. Um, my parents were from St. Paul, and 1984, they moved up here. And my dad was an assistant pastor at a church there, and he felt called. He was a teacher as well in the cities, in the public schools. And through that, he really felt um, Lord laid on his heart. Christian education, because being in the public school system, even at that time, he saw a lot that really concerned him, the things they taught, uh, the things they didn't teach, and so Ken's grandpa 
they ran into each other at a camp north of here and so they became friends and uh one thing led to another and they kind of invited him, my dad to come up and be the pastor because they had started a school there with their families and so we moved up and so my dad left a pretty good um church and position there at the church and teaching jobs to come up and so I didn't know it at that time I was four but the Lord would use that later in my life to I, I guess give me a real something to look back to and see my parents example even in that in just moving and uh so yeah, I grew up in Christian school, and uh, you know, at the time or soon after, lots of people complain about their upbringing or Christian schools, or it was just as bad. I mean, I was a PK, and I got lots of, you know, we're supposed to be twice as bad, and I don't know if we were, I was twice as bad, but <laughs> um, it was good. There was uh. A lot of, like I said, a lot of things that I didn't realize at the time that would come back to me later in life, and I would come to appreciate a lot more than I did at the time. Um, there's lots of details that don't matter too much, but towards high school, I always thought I was a, a Christian. I mean, I, I would, I believed in Jesus, I would s say that, um, and I did trust, I never had a question of God's ultimacy. Um, I questioned it in my own life. <laughs> but as far as like what I was going to turn to as the answer, I never really doubted God. And I only God gets the credit for that because it wasn't out of myself or I never doubted. That was God's grace. And that was really God's grace through my parents because it was demonstrated through my parents, even though not being perfect or demonstrating their own lives. Like I knew my parents never questioned God's sovereignty ultimately. You know, there's circumstances in life that shake our faith and we don't know why this is happening or we really, our faith is waning, but so that was a foundation of my life that uh, was just his grace alone, and I was going to need it. <laughs> um, you know, now, being 32, I start to forget even details of, <laughs> like, my, by the end of high school, my relationship with my parents was really falling apart, and we saw it just differently. My dad and I have always seen... <laughs> You know, my younger brother was the one to work with my dad. He was great at it. <laughs> my dad and I always butted heads. I love my dad, but we just, I think because we both have hard heads. So <laughs> my grandpa had a hard head too. They were always bickering. And <laughs> so, which is a great quality too. <laughs> Can be. <laughs> um, it was really falling apart apart and there was a lot of stress at that time in the church and uh disagreements 
with other families, basically a church split. And uh, I saw things differently than my parents, and it was really tough on both of us. And, you know, I didn't know it was <laughs> – I was not a good judge of much at that point. But the main thing was it was just between my, me and my parents. You know, I was – I felt hurt, and they definitely felt hurt too. So it was just one of those things where I don't know. <laughs> God had a purpose for it that I couldn't see at the time. And at this time, I still, like, I went to church. I believed in scripture. It wasn't, but I wouldn't say my life was really, I didn't have any vision for my life necessarily. I would say at that time it was pretty, I don't know, what normal people normally think of when you're at that stage of life. What am I going to do? Okay, what am I good at? Well, I'm good at music. Um, okay, you know, I'll be a musician or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> so, and, you know, we had lots of friends in bands and there was always a temptation and people would ask, you know, we should be, we should be in a band. We should do this. And I've had scores of friends. <laughs> so if you want to start a band, just talk to me and I will talk you out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Evan. <laughs> but you know there are those kind of things that um well right after high school so things really fell apart with my parents so right after I graduated I moved away to a friend's house you know in the Brand Lakes area and but I didn't talk to my parents for probably a year or any of my friends here and uh it was tough. I mean, I was definitely hurting and um, I think, I, you know, I was looking at the time, you know, I met other friends and they were great, you know, understanding helped me a lot, but there was still something definitely missing in my own heart. And so I decided, I had a lot of friends at the time that went to Youth with a Mission, and I decided at some point, I took a trip after high school, like 8,000 miles in two weeks around the whole U.S. with a friend of mine, and I don't recommend that either. <laughs> and uh, we went through Montana, and there's a YWAM base there, kind of where Bill and, uh, Billy and Nikki live now on Kalispell Lake, and so they had a Bible school there, um, music stuff, and if you're not familiar with YWAM, you go for, I think it's five, six months, you do kind of like lectures, and you kind of work on towards your missions trip at the end, you take three, four weeks, you do a missions trip. So I went there, and we at that time, I still really wasn't talking with my parents. It was pretty, they were iffy whether I should go, and there was a big to-do about that at the time. <laughs> and um, so I left on the train, went out there. And at that time, the Lord was really working. 
on my heart, I think, to um, forgive my dad for things that I felt, you know, I felt hurt for. And uh, so I called him when I was out there, and there was some progress in just talking with him, at least establishing contact again. And um, I went out there, and I was really like, man, I am missing something. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it never dawned on me that it was necessarily spiritual, but... Um, like, I don't know what it is. I just feel like I am missing something. And, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And so we had a band, we went to New Zealand and we sort of evangelized (laughs) 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 vacation, man, whatever. And, uh, we did that, and I came back, and they had a Bible school there, and it was pretty good, a pretty good one. Um, the Montana base is pretty good because of the Bible school. It keeps it grounded. And uh, so, I don't know, I I felt like I was supposed to do that. Like, you know what, I don't, I think for whatever I'm going to do in life, I should just get a good grounding in God's Word and Scripture, and it's... You know, it was nine months of Bible study, um, intensive Bible study. So, and it was a major workload. <laughs> it's it has been compared to like going to a major college, and um, so and I was not. Uh, I didn't care that much to apply myself to school or academics. <laughs> um, I had no interest, really. <laughs> I, um, so I went there, and I did the New Testament. So I should say, um, randomly, uh, I got a girlfriend right <laughs> as I was leaving, leaving YWAM there, a girl I knew. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is great. Um you know, and like most young relationships, you're like, yeah, I think this one's it. Seems good. <laughs> um, you know, long distance, it always works out. And uh, so she lived in Seattle. So I would like, I went out there and again, it was just <laughs> thinking back, I don't know what I was thinking in my mind. It wasn't a lot of like, this makes sense. This is, you know, a vision moving forward. And uh, she was smarter than I was. She uh, recognized that this was not probably going to work out. <laughs> and uh, But she was going to be back in Montana, and I was going to go there to the Bible school. So I'm like, oh, we'll see. So it was quickly falling apart, like with weeks of being in the Bible school. And she pretty much, she broke up with me. And uh, towards the end of that first, like the New Testament study. And it was intensive. I mean, you read each book of the Bible. It's inductive Bible study method. You read the Bible five times in nine months. So you read each book. You write each book out. And it wasn't a lot of work. 
And it was really good because even though like I was not doing well at the academics of that, it was still impossible not to be exposed to the meat of Scripture and the New Testament. And as we went through the New Testament, um, everything kind of came down to we were in the book of Romans and uh, the leader of the school was t taking that book and teaching it. And so Romans is Christianity 101, and so you can't really get around it studying that book, what the gospel really is. And so I'm studying God's word. I feel like everything's falling apart. You know, the relationship's falling apart, so you're just emotionally distraught. And then... That doesn't help <laughs> get any schoolwork done. So that's falling apart. So I was, I just felt like, I was just distraught. I mean, felt like everything's falling apart. You know, what am I, I'm supposed to be moving forward in life here. And, you know, my relationship with my parents is really bad. Um, all the friends in this room, I was, I didn't talk to. Um wasn't close to it was just me I was just <laughs> totally alone and uh, it's exactly where God wanted me to be is just alone and stripped down to who I really was and a lot of the anguish in my own mind I think was because of I felt like I was failing at everything and I was but that was God's point and um, everybody has different things that they is the stumbling block to the gospel for them and it all involves pride so whether you're really successful or a major failure like I was it's still your pride you know I didn't want to give it up like I felt like, no, I need to pull it together. And, but it had nothing to do with God's grace on my life. It had, I was giving no credit to him for, I just wanted to do it. I, you know, that's what everyone does, right? I mean, make something of yourself and pull it together. And the Lord was just stripping me down. And... I would talk with certain friends. I had some good friends from Sweden uh, that were that it became good friends there. And I remember having lunch with them in the cafeteria once. And I was just kind of, it, it was obvious. I was pretty distraught. And um, he just encouraged me, like the Lord, the Lord's trying to show you something, Aaron. So be praying, ask him what, what is he trying to show you? And I don't know <laughs> that he wants to crush me. I think that's it. <laughs> and because uh, that's how I felt, you know, like, oh, I guess God just wants to crush me. And uh, OK, fine. <laughs> and um, as we got through the end of Romans and the last day of Romans, the leader of the school gave kind of a, a sermon and wrapped the whole book up. 
and I'll say before we got to that, we watched in the beginning of Romans, I don't know if any of you have seen the Etau video um, with the missionaries, South America, and they taught the whole Bible basically to the natives. So by the time they get to the gospel uh, later in scripture, they all understood it. And I recommend it, you watch it. It's, uh, it's amazing. So Whole Village Comes to Christ and on video. So it's awesome. And that video just destroyed me. And I had no idea why. I'm like, you know, I watched it. And now I know it was because it was the heart of the gospel message. So I just wept like in class. And I'm like, what in the world? Why am I, why am I crying? Like, <laughs> and so the Lord was just breaking me down. So whether I, you know, knew it or not, it was just like, bam, I'm going to break your heart right now. And uh, he was softening my heart to the gospel, the real gospel. And so um, in that school, you had other teachers, and they were kind of assigned to like five to help you in that book of the Bible. So this uh, this woman from Norway, she was helping with some of my work, and I'm just like, <laughs> I can't do this right. I just, <laughs> I'm totally distraught. I can't even focus on any of this. And all she told me was, Aaron, you're learning the scripture. What do you see in scripture? And then what do you see in your own heart, in your own mind? Are they different? How do you think about God in your mind? And then what do you see in scripture? What does the scripture say? And that just really started to hit me really hard. And these are the verses that hit me hard in Romans. We're all familiar with these, but Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And there in verse 30, when you're breaking it down, look at that verse close and you'll see the, the whole picture of the gospel, basically. Before time... God knew you as his child. He predestined you, and then in your life he called you. When he called you, he had already, and all these are in the past tense, so he already did this. He called you, he also justified you through Christ. And if you're justified through Christ, he also will glorify you in heaven, in eternity. And it's all past tense. So if you're thinking like, okay, right there's the promise of the Lord. If you believe in Christ, that means 
He has predestined you. He's called you to the gospel outside of yourself. And you didn't orchestrate your situation. You weren't born to the parents that you didn't choose your parents. So many things, like I could look back at my life and I could see everything, like I didn't deserve or choose to be born to my parents and that were faithful to God's word and to follow him as best they could. And all these things, I mean, I could go on, all of us could go on for hours of the different instances where you can clearly see the Lord outside of yourself orchestrated things to affect you and affect your mind, how you think, bring you to the gospel if you believe in Christ. And he's promised to glorify you with him. And so verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who's to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that spoke exactly to my situation and what I thought. Because at that time, like my teacher said, what do you see in Scripture and then what do you believe? What I believed is was I wasn't sure whether I was going to screw up my salvation. I was pretty sure I was going to and that I was going to screw up my whole life. And I didn't see a lot of evidence otherwise. And so I was despairing. I mean, I didn't see... I was failing. And what scripture was telling me is that nothing, including myself, can keep me from him. He's the author of my salvation. He created me. He's predestined, called, justified, and he will glorify me. And that's our guarantee of salvation right there for all of us. And I remember walking out of the classrooms and, you know, Montana's gorgeous. And it's in that school's in the foothills. There was a river near there. And I remember walking out of there just like after that class in the morning as we went through those verses. And I went down to a stream by the base there and I just like 
I said it all out loud, what I thought, and to God. And just wept to him. And I gave it all up. I'm like, God, you're the one. It's not me. And that my own sin was holding on to that. My pride was that I thought I could. Whether I was failing or not, I still thought it was up to me. And nothing is up to me. It's up to God's sovereignty. And I gave it all up. I just laid it out. I gave, you know, the failed relationships with parents and girls and everything, my own failings. Like, all right, Lord, it's it's up to you. I know it is. I put my faith in you. And I walked up, like, out of that, um, from that river. And, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those times you can't really describe. Because it's really that sweet time with the Lord that he just lifted. <laughs> Everything lifted off my chest. Um, and I really, I really felt totally different. And it was a miracle <laughs> because I was driven insane by my own anxiety before that of my life and all the circumstances. It was, I was just at my wit's end and just instantly giving it to the Lord by his grace. It's all lifted off me. And, uh, you know, things were still in shambles, but I remember just like laying on my bunk there in my room and just feeling so close to the Lord like I never had before. And... You know, it was it was emotional. I mean, you felt those emotions, and uh, stronger than ever. You know, it was ever have in my life, and so I hung in there school-wise, finished the New Testament, but you had to get certain grades to, to go into the Old Testament, and uh, I didn't do that, so I went home. And I remember talking to a couple of my friends, and uh, they were like, man, Eric, it sounds like you got saved. I'm like, what? No. No, I don't think so. I just, uh, no, I think it sounds like you got saved. Like, And I started to really think about it, and especially now for me, I do think that's when I was saved. Not that everything before that was, you know, a sham or I did have a belief in God. and But the reality was I did not understand who the actual person of Christ was in relation to me. So just like, you know, if you don't really know, if you've never talked to Danny, you don't actually know him. I mean, you know he's here and you might know a few things about him, but... You don't really know him. And that was me with Christ and the gospel. I didn't accept him as my atonement and understand what that meant. And uh, and I had no idea that's what I was missing. <laughs> and 
I don't say that to cast doubt on anyone's mind, but you should consider what do I think about Christ and what do I think in my own mind? You know, it's, it, it's very important. <laughs> it has eternal consequences. But um, so briefly, I came back and, you know, everything was not good after that, even though um, I had an incredible time, like, getting to know the Lord. Um, I mean, that was really like a honeymoon time there. I would go out in the mountains and read read the Bible, you know, in the rain, and just, <laughs> it's a special time, I'll always remember. But the Lord had a lot of, a lot of trials ahead for me. And he was laying a foundation. Um, but the Lord had a, a ton of sanctification to do in me. And so I won't get too into detail because it doesn't matter that much. But there was a lot of years of just no vision for I didn't understand what, what now. You know, I, I knew scripture better I would read scripture more but I still don't know what I was doing with life or anything I I went to the cities for a couple years and I was accepted to a music school there in St. Paul and I went down there to to find a job and I was staying with a friend in an apartment and figured out pretty quick that it was not worth the money to go to the school <laughs> and the school shut down now and I, I made a right choice for once and um, I know at there was a pastor there and I was good friends with a church um, a group of friends down there the pastor there is friends with my dad and he knew that things were still not great with my parents and I think there's just, you know, lots of people. You kind of look in other areas for things that are really lacking where they should be. And I would look for family and close relationships with other good people, which is not wrong necessarily, but it still didn't negate the fact that my relationship with my family was kind of in tatters still. And so one of the wisest things a pastor's ever said to me in a loving way, um, I think I was going over there for Easter, and I got there, and he, and he pulled me aside. He's like, Aaron, you really need to work things out with your parents. We're not your real family. <laughs> and he said it in total love and grace, and he wasn't saying you can't be here, but he was just like, you have a family. You need to work it out with them. And so I think a month later, um, through different unfortunate circumstances, <laughs> I went back home. And uh, so there's a lot of things going on, but one thing that was starting to happen was Bible study with 
Andrew, who was involved with this church in the beginning, part of Ken's family, and uh, Ken too, and kind of all of us young, really young people in our teens, late teens. <laughs> Ken was later. And uh, so really we started more and more like um, Andrew kind of introduced to some of us John Piper and really the doctrines of God's sovereignty and grace. So as we went through those, it just confirmed a lot of the things that I had learned in scripture, um, especially God's sovereignty over all areas of life. And so that was really the beginnings of providence there. There was, um, I'm the eldest Calvinist here. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, again, I didn't want to get too much. There's so much detail and <laughs> different examples of turmoil. But God's faithfulness through all of it in this church, even through turmoil and people's sin, my sin, failings of of all kinds, the Lord was just faithful to bring us to where we are now. And it was not because we designed this. This was not our goal or our vision necessarily. It was a, out of necessity that we realized more of our life needs to reflect God's word. That's why we started Providence. Um, that's why we just started meeting together. It wasn't like Providence, our church, here's our logo. It was out of necessity uh, that we needed to be accountable to each other and accountable to Scripture most of all. And so that was uh, huge. And then later, I think 2008, before I got married, during one of uh, the downtimes with <laughs> with my current wife, <laughs> um, it was a winter where I was working. We were broken up, and uh, you know, a little down, pretty down about it. And Ken's mom gave me a history series from R.J. Rushdoony, and history, social studies was the only subject I really enjoyed in school and did, did really well at. I could breeze through that fine. So I ate it up, and I mean, I listened to hours, days of lectures. <laughs> and for the first time, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with R.J. Rush Juni, um, his main thing was God words applies to every area of life and thought. And modern Christianity, I think, doesn't really reflect that. They've put it in certain pietistic categories and, oh, you come to church and then, but it doesn't really apply to like monetary policy or um, self-defense of a nation or your business or um, having children or medical ethics or, you know, it has to do with feelings and a little bit of psychology mixed in 
with Christianity. That's what I thought, and that's what I think a lot of American Christianity is like. But suddenly it was just a biblical view of all of history. And it blew me away, I mean. And uh, so I just say that because that, besides coming to Christ and understanding God's sovereignty and um, the doctrines of grace, understanding that God's word applies to every area of life has been the biggest life-changing thing for me. And I know in this church we talk about it, Ken talks about it, or you hear talk about the law, and um, there's a lot of, I would say the majority, if you listen to like Christian radio or popular Christianity, the law is only used in terms of like, oh, it's horrible. It's uh, what Christ delivered us from. And people don't want to hear about what Scripture has to say necessarily about really specifically applying to their life, how they should live. Um, and so I just say it to say that uh, it's been life-changing and to see the rest of Scripture, to see God's purpose for the Old Testament, covenant all through Scripture, through the law, through uh, the Gospels and Christ coming, and Really, it was the other more than half, probably, of how God wanted me to live now. So uh, I guess in wrap-up, um, God's Word is the answer for us. And through all the things that I went through, that's what He really... His speaking to us is through scripture chiefly and he affects our emotions at times but we need God's word to ground us and it's our guide and there's a reason King David said he loved the law and because it shows us what to do and so I just uh, wanted to share those things today because God just deserves all the glory and all the credit for bringing me to him and for putting me in the family with my parents. My relationship with my parents has really been restored and uh, I have a good relationship with them and that's to God's credit alone. There was times where I don't I had doubts and they had doubts too whether we ever would and we do so praise the Lord and uh, so maybe I'll wrap it up at there um, God gets the credit for everything <laughs> and where he's brought us now and my wife and child and children on the way and I look back and I just see the Lord put me through trials to bring me to my knees so I would point to him only. I'm glad I wasn't successful at all these things or successful at music or because I would have been puffed up 
you know, I would have had more to stumble over in seeing God's total sovereignty and my need for him. So in the future, that's what I expect more of, really. I think everything now is to, the Lord's going to bring us all through harder trials, I think, in the future. And uh, if you look at history, that's what always happens. So I'm uh, really thankful for the body of believers here and all my friends and uh, people that the Lord has just, by his grace, brought us together and brought us through things. And it's going to be for his glory and put us through the fire because we're going to be taking care of like 60 kids in the future, <laughs> minimum. So we will need vision and uh, perseverance. So thanks for having me share. If you would bow your head in prayer with me as we transition Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for being so gracious to grant us this time together. Lord, and I know I don't speak only for myself when I want to thank you for blessing us with our worship leader, Aaron, for ransoming his soul, for sanctifying him, putting him in ministry. Lord, we're blessed every day as we're led before your throne, God, with able ministers bringing worship to, to you, Lord, on their instruments, with their voices, and with the lyrics, Lord, that honor and glorify your name. We thank you, Lord, that we've learned today more of where that's grounded as you have done a miracle in Aaron's heart. I pray, Lord, that you would use this message from your holy scriptures that Aaron referred to earlier to solidify each and every one of us in the how then shall we live or in the introduction to Jesus Christ, depending on where your grace finds us this morning. And all that you might be glorified and the good work that you have begun in us might continue in leaps and bounds until the day when you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open up, if, we, if you would, with me to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34. Our Psalm a Month series has brought us now to our second acrostic psalm. An acrostic psalm is a unique literary structure in the Hebrew language, a form of poetry where each phrase or stanza of the poem begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We don't really have the equivalent of it in our uh, common poetry forms, but maybe you've seen an old primer. Um, I can't remember if it was the Puritan primer or something along those lines, but we used to educate our children by opening up that primer, and, and the, on the first page, there was a letter A, and it said, A, in Adam all sinned. B, and I forget what it is. I didn't learn it very well, obviously. But each letter of the alphabet was attached to an idea. Well, that was a form of poetry in the Hebrew language. And in Psalm 34, it brings us to the second of seven acrostic poems in the Scriptures, and more on that in a moment. Let's read these words here that we have recorded, starting with the title, and then we'll move to verse 1. The title reads in Psalm 34 of David, When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. And here we read in verse 1, David's worship song. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. 
Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. When the man is there who desires, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Praise God. The title of this morning's message is The Redeemed Captive. I take that title from two places. First, the title of this psalm indicates that David was in a place where he had been running from Saul and found himself King Abimelech uh, referred to here, which is the generic term I'm told in Achish, I believe was the king's name, a Philistine king in Gath. David was running for his life and sought refuge, safe haven among his enemies. How ironic and how low must your trial be when you feel it's safer with your enemies than those who are your people. That's where David found himself. In this situation, between a rock and a hard place, David, knowing, knowing uh, not what else to do, no doubt, feigned insanity because he had been caught. The people there... In the, among the Philistines said, hey, isn't this the guy that the people of Saul sang? He has slain his ten thousands, whereas their king only has slain his thousands. And there was some suspicion about him. Perhaps he was sent as a spy. Perhaps he would overthrow this land. So they brought him to their king. David feigned madness. He started to claw on the gate. He let the spittle run down his beard, the scriptures say in 1 Samuel. And then he stood before the king, and the king said, don't I have enough madmen in my court already? Get this idiot out of here. And so David left. After that incident, David wrote this psalm. After that incident, the Lord was gracious enough to bring along to David's side some 400 people who would join him in his life of fugitive exile and waiting until the promise of God's covenant with him to be king would actually take firm foothold in reality. It's interesting, the juxtaposition between David's feigned madness And this psalm, which is a sophisticated piece of artistry that I have just begun to scratch the surface, and I hope to reveal some of its depths to you this morning. Psalm 34 surprises us in its historical context. Considering its title, 
And then the parallel account in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And you can study that later. That's where David stands before the Philistine king. Yet here in Psalm 34, David regroups from feigning madness to pen one of the most amazing psalms, I think, in our study so far. It's beautiful. It's unbelievably specific and particular in its imagery. It has messianic prophecy. It has an artistry about it that follows the Hebrew alphabet that we can't even quite appreciate in our own language. And it ties together, as most of his psalms do, themes from cover to cover in Scripture in a way that it was song and worship and yet doctrinal depth. These spectacular threads are woven like a tapestry of redemptive revelation and the ingenious parallelism in this psalm from its ingenious parallelism parallelism all the way to its messianic premonition, we can stand awed that a man who had just acted crazy can write something so beautiful as Psalm 34. I'm going to give you a heading, five study guides for Psalm 34. wasn't quite sure how to structure this sermon, but I have five ways that you might appreciate this psalm that I'll give to you briefly, but I would encourage you to follow up on these ways in your own time in more detail. Number one, Parallels in the history of the saints. Number two, parallels in acrostic poetry. Number three, parallels in theme. Number four, parallels in structure. And number five, parallels in messianic fulfillment. Parallelism is perhaps the chief distinctive element of Hebrew poetry. Related ideas written or listed back to back that add deeper dimension and understanding and beauty to what's being portrayed. There are many parallels, and some of these parallels are internal within the psalm itself, and some of these parallels are external in greater scripture and even history. Point number one reflects that truth. There's parallels in Psalm 34 that we can make with the history of the saints. There are saints who have been caught in David's situation all through history. Hebrews 11 comes to mind, that great hall of faith, as we sometimes call it, where people... And different places were put in hardships, brought through the crucible and the fire. And God used their story of faith and faithfulness to demonstrate to us a testimony of His overcoming power in a life. As Hebrews 11 begins to wrap up and close, in the closing verses, it describes two types of of people that were listed there in the hall of faith, as it were. Number one were overcomers, and number two were the sufferers. There were those like David who were delivered in this life, But there were others who were sawn in two. There were those who overcame armies and their tens of thousands, as the people sang of David. But there were others who were crushed and martyred for their faith. But I'm telling you, in both cases, the evidence of God's power to preserve under death and persecution and power to preserve in overcoming are equally telling to His Great work in the heart of an individual to give them firm grounding in their faith to negotiate the throes of life. So the parallels of David's experience are listed throughout history. I'd like to give you one in a more modern context. It's in our own history. There was colonial wars prior to 1776 that's so famous for us in our own history textbooks where we went to war with England. But prior to that, there was an account called The Redeemed Captive, which shares the title for this morning's message, that was written by a Reverend John Williams, a Puritan congregational minister living in North Massachusetts. Actually, it would be Maine now. And this man was a minister of the gospel in a remote area. It was an area very much a pioneering effort and an area racked with and fraught with trial. 
he found himself in a similar situation as David did before the king Abimelech. Listen to his account. Well, first, let me give you a preface. He was sleeping one night in his house. His wife had just had a child. Their growing family was under duress, and they were supposed to be a watchman guarding this little settlement because there was a war. There was a Spanish and, uh, and the French were both at war with England, and in this particular region, the French were allied with the Indians, and they were trying to take over English settlements, and among them was the settlement where this man, John Williams, lived. Well, sure enough, the one night when the watchman was negligent in his duties, there was a bang on the door, and it turns out 20-some Indians were beating down his door. He picked up his pistol and fired into the chest of the first Indian, only to hear a click. And that's what saved his life and the life of at least some of his family. They were an exiled captive. It was in the wintertime. Snow was knee-deep, and they were promptly marched 300 miles to Quebec. I say promptly, but as you imagine, if you have 100 or so people walking in the dead of winter, that would take a while. Well, his wife, who had just had a child and a couple of their children already succumbing to violent death, you can imagine how discouraging these situations might have been for him and how weary it was. He recorded for us these experiences so we don't have to imagine too much. We can actually read them. And in his book, The Redeemed Captive, I'm going to pick up on some of his language describing that journey of exile. He took, he that took me, was unwilling to let me speak with any of the prisoners as we marched. But on the morning of the second day, he being appointed to guard the rear, I was put into the hands of my other master who permitted me to speak to my wife when I overtook her and to walk with her, to help her in her journey. On the way, we discoursed of the happiness of those who had a right to an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and God for a father and friend, as also that it was our reasonable duty quietly to submit to the will of God and to say, the will of the Lord be done. My wife told me her strength of body began to fail and that I must be, expect to part, that I must expect to part with her saying, she hoped God would preserve my life and the life of some, if not all of our children with us and commended to me under God the care of them. She never spake in any discontented words as to what had befallen us, but with suitable expressions justified God and what had befallen us. We soon made an halt, in which time my chief surviving master came up, upon which I was put upon marching with the foremost, and so made to take my last farewell of my dear wife, the desire of my eyes, and companion in many mercies and afflictions. Upon our separation from each other, we asked for each other grace sufficient for what God should call us to. After our being departed from one another, she spent the few remaining minutes of her stay in reading the Holy Scriptures, which she was wont personally every day to delight her soul in reading, praying, meditating of and over by herself in her closet, over and above what she had heard out of them in our family worship. I was made to wait over a small river, and so were all the English. The water above knee deep, the stream very swift, and after that to travel up a small mountain, my strength was almost spent. Before I came to the top of it, no sooner had I overcome the difficulty of that ascent, but I was permitted to sit down on burden of my pack. I sat pitying those who were behind and entreating my master to let me go and help up my wife, but he refused and would not let me stir from him. I asked each of the prisoners as they passed me after her and heard that in passing through the above said river she fell down and was plunged over head and ears in the water. 
after which she traveled not far. For at the foot of this mountain, the cruel and bloodthirsty savage who took her slew her with his hatchet in one stroke, the tidings of which were very awful. And yet such was hard-heartedness of the adversary, and my tears were reckoned to me as a reproach. My loss and the loss of my children was great. Our hearts were so filled with sorrow that nothing but the comfortable hopes of her being taken away in mercy to herself from the evils we were to see, feel, and suffer under and join to the assembly of the spirits of just men made perfect to rest in peace and joy unspeakable and full of glory and the good pleasure of God thus to exercise us could have kept us from sinking under at that time. That scripture, Job 121. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was brought to my mind, and from it, that an afflicting God was to be glorified with some other places of Scripture to persuade to a patient bearing my afflictions. Read that last phrase again. That an afflicting God was to be glorified with some other places of Scripture, to persuade to a patient bearing my afflictions. Reading again Psalm thirty-four, fifteen: Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I submit to you that this passage of Scripture, along with the one cited, would have been sufficient for this family struggling, for this woman who was brutally murdered, for this march in the dead of winter with a whole family that had been conquered and then brought away by their captors to a place they did not know, suffering along the way, death, scourge, disease, frostbite, and suffering. There are two kinds of people in Hebrews 11 that are listed there as examples of Christ's inner overcoming power. They are the conquerors and the sufferers. And we have here in 1703 and 1704 the record of some sufferers. Could it be said of them that the Lord delivered them from their afflictions? As He promises in His Word, verse 34, or verse 19 of chapter 34 of the Psalms, that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all? Yes, and I say again, yes. Because the peace and rest that was granted, the perennial Sabbath that that lovely woman entered into, was the rest, the ultimate deliverance from the afflictions of this life that this psalm ultimately declares. And so this psalm is a respite and a comfort for those who find themselves under the worst of circumstances, as well as a song of rejoicing for those who have been miraculously delivered from the things that they are going through. David was a conqueror. But there was other times when David would be in deep distress again. And he would need these words. And he would need to say to himself, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. There's parallels in history of the saints, in the history of the saints with David's experience in Psalm 34. Sometimes God sets us on a mountain to shine for His glory. And sometimes he sets us in a, valley, in a valley to endure for his name's sake. And either one, whether we find ourselves in either place, the word of God is sufficient to give us grace to persevere. Number two, parallels in acrostic poetry. 
to write these, write these down if you would. And if you're interested in studying later, Psalm 25, along with Psalm 34, Psalm 37, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, 119, and 145 are all acrostic poems. If we compare just one of them to this one, we find a theme that is consistent throughout. We've covered this in one of our previous messages, Psalm 25. Listen to 16 verse through 22. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Does that remind us of Psalm 34, verse 22? The Lord redeems the life of his servants. And again, this language is repeated at the end, at the concluding remarks of each one of these glorious acrostic psalms. 111, 9, he sent redemption to his people. 119, 174, I long for your salvation. Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous, of the righteous is of the Lord. And, and, and so it goes with each one of these acrostic psalms is a theme of God's redemptive power when it's put to the test. And so the parallels in this acrostic poetry are beautiful. The themes run alongside each other and they're listed for us in, incrementally in the Psalter. And there are seven times when we read this acrostic poetry. What else can this acrostic method teach us? We've mentioned in the past how in literary form we can appreciate the whole scope of God's providence. From A to Z, He is faithful. Here we have in the acrostic poetry and literary device the providence of God illustrating the scope of His sufficiency, whether again we're on the mountaintop or in the deepest valley. I'm reminded of Revelation 1.8 and 22.13, the opening and the closing of the closing book of Scripture, where God reveals Himself, the Almighty reveals Himself, and Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega. Again, the same idea that acrostic poetry has, the beginning and the end, from A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega. And here we have, in the compendious name of God, assurance that His grace is utterly sufficient. From beginning to end, He has sovereignly decreed our way. Aaron mentioned from Romans chapter 8, the same truths written down related to our salvation. If a God is powerful and wise enough to predestine before this world began, every name written in the Lamb's book of life, can He not? Surely on the price of that lamb's slain body give you all things. Cannot the Lord who miraculously raised you from from spiritual death usher you into glory? Ultimately, even if you have to die in adverse circumstances in this life. Surely he who has begun a good work in you and that work was begun before time began will be faithful to complete it until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign and sufficient from A to Z, from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega. Number three, there's parallels in theme. There's three important themes I isolated and helped me organize these thoughts in Psalm 34. Could be perhaps labeled or categorized under three labels, character, 
comportment and consolation. Character. Within this psalm, I just began to make a, a notes in my study of 15 descriptions is what I came up with identifying the righteous. Who are the righteous? Psalm 34 tells you. They are the humble, the poor man, those who fear Him, who takes refuge in Him, verses 8 and 22. You His saints, verse 9, who seek the Lord, verse 10. O children, verse 11. The righteous, verses 15, 17, 19. The brokenhearted, verse 18. The crushed in spirit, verse 18. And His servants, verse 22. The character of the righteous, the blood-bought, those who God is pleased to redeem and shows the evidence of His redemption in their life and their confession are described in 15 ways in this psalm. Reminds you of the Beatitudes, does it not? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who suffer for His namesake and so on. Secondly, under parallels and theme, there's this comportment, which is a word that means behaving in a manner conformable to what is right. The comportment of the righteous or the bearing of the righteous or the expression of the righteous Again, I just wrote down in my notes every time in this psalm there was a description of the outworking of the character of the righteous. What do we do? What is a worthy confession, praise to offer to the Lord when we realize that our hope is only in Him? Well, again, as I wrote them down, I counted 15. 15 ways the psalmist expresses to the Lord in Psalm 34 His disposition now having been miraculously saved. I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 1, praise is continually in his mouth. Again, verse 1, my soul boasts in the Lord. Verse 2, magnify the Lord. Verse 3, exalt his name together. Again, verse 3, I sought the Lord in both 4 and 10. I looked to him in verse 5, cried to him in verse 6. Taste and see. Verse 8, fear the Lord, verse 9, keep my tongue from evil, verse 13, keep lips from speaking deceit, again 13, turn from evil and do good, verse 14, seek and pursue peace, verse 14, the comportment of the redeemed. And finally, consolation. Again, in just the sovereign beauty of this psalm, I wrote down every time in this psalm, the promises and the blessings to the righteous are recorded for us. And again, 15 emerged from the page. He answered me, verse 4. He delivered me from all my fears, verse 4. Faces shall never be ashamed, verse 5. The Lord heard him, in verse 6. Saved him out of all his troubles, verse 6. Again, angel of the, the angel of the Lord encamps and delivers, verse 7. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, verse 8. They have no lack, verse 9. Lack no good thing, verse 10. Eyes and the ears of the Lord are toward him, verse 15. Ears, he hears and delivers from trouble, verse 17. God is near and saves, verse 18. Delivers out of affliction, verse 19. Keeps all his bones, verse 20. Redeems the life of his servants, leaving none condemned, verse 22. So the parallels and theme are striking and rich. Number four, five study guides for Psalm 34. Talked about there's parallels to David's beautiful poetic description in this psalm of worship in the history of the saints. Secondly, there's parallels in acrostic poetry to appreciate, to compare the other examples of this type of worship expression alongside. Thirdly, internally, within the psalm itself, there's parallels in theme 
15 different ways David gloriously describes, for instance, the consolation of the righteous, the promise and blessing that God offers those that are His own. And fourthly, there's parallels in structure. Spurgeon notes, and I think it's, it's a profound notation in verse 11, it's as if this psalm changes from a hymn to a sermon. David has been worshiping the Lord, and we hear this song rise, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I remember singing those words growing up. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He continues to verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then there's a shift about halfway. David closes his hymn, as it were, opens the scriptures as we're doing today, and begins to preach. And here we see the pedagogical power of his words unfolding to us in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lip from speaking deceit. And so it goes. We have a hymn. And a sermon. It's like a worship service wrapped up in 22 verses for us. But an additional note, a parallel in structure for you. It occurred to me that if you line up verse 1 of the hymn section, with beginning with verse 11 in the sermon section, you get parallels like this. I will bless the Lord at all times in verse 1. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 2 and 12, notice as they're paired side by side. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble hear and be glad. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name together. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And so these line up their ideas so well. In verse 13, we're commanded to keep our tongue from speaking certain things. In verse 3, we're told what instead to offer to the Lord. Rather than deceitful speech, we are to magnify the Lord with the assembly of the beloved and exalt His name together. Verse 4 and 14, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, this idea of pursuing the Lord. He sought the Lord as well as pursued peace. The Lord delivered him from all of his fears. And the Lord turned away and as the Lord commands us to turn from evil and do good. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Speaking of our sensory beholding of the Lord, we are to see Him, to look to Him, to turn our eyes to Him, even as verse 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. A beautiful picture. Our eyes on the Lord, the Lord's eyes on us. Locked in that shared stare or look of love and beholding one another. Verse 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. In verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them off the earth. And here's a contrast. And as you line up these verses side by side and you see the parallel ideas, you can perhaps appreciate more of the ingenuity, the structure, the beauty and the depth of this psalm. 
There's parallels externally in greater scripture, and there's parallels internally as well. One more parallel that I'll close this message with is a parallel in messianic fulfillment. These words that are quoted by David are spoken by David in verse 20. He keeps all his bones if none of them is broken are spoken again in relationship to the cross. And I'll turn you over in closing to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, Jesus' passion has unfolded to the point of his death. And as he has now endured the apex of his suffering, the cup of God's wrath that he drank for us, and having surrendered his spirit to the Father and given up the ghost, we pick up in John chapter 19, verses 32 and following. But When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him who, whom they have pierced. When David was writing centuries prior, there was a messianic premonition in his words. When he spoke of his own bones being rescued from the onslaught of the evil one, He was also speaking of the preservation of the members of the body of Christ. David writes, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Christ fulfills not one of his bones being broken as the scriptures had said and as it unfolded at the the moment of the cross. Whatever could this mean? Well, I think we find the ultimate fulfillment of this in Revelation chapter 7. You see, David has been speaking to God's preserving power as an acrostic psalm theme for all who are in Christ Jesus, ultimately, and in his terms, all who are the righteous. But in order for them to be preserved, they are tied to covenant promises. And these covenant promises in the whole scope of Scripture find their parallel in messianic fulfillment. As we consider that on the cross... Not a single member of Jesus' body, his skeletal frame, that is, was broken. I'm reminded that not a single member of his, if you will, mystical body will be lost. That is, all who are in Christ will be saved. You and I are the body of Christ. And just as none of his bones were broken and none of David's bones were broken, so every member of his body will be ransomed, redeemed, and ushered into glory one day. We read of this truth unfolding in even uh, more expansive and glorious language, if it could be said, in Revelation 7, 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, and so it continues, 12,000 from Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin were sealed, 
Notice verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the imagery here is that to a man, every single one of God's chosen people that he had ransomed and were members of Christ's body were there assembled and in one accord fulfilling what David was prophesying and declaring all the way back in Psalm 34. Not one of Christ's body was lost. In all will one day join and their voices will be lifted in one accord to the Alpha and to the Omega, to the beginning and to the end. And in this ultimate picture of redemption, when the acrostic psalms and the themes thereof are fulfilled in their manifest degree, we will experience with all the saints what we referred to recently as the perennial Sabbath glory of heaven. And here the fullness of God's people dwell in perfect peace, and eternal celebration, singing that theme, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I would remind you that that is the theme of Psalm 34 and of the acrostic Psalms, that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But listen, verse 22, the glorious promise, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, what glorious soaring truths are these that we find encoded in your scriptures. Lord, overflowing to the brim with the fullness of truth revealed to the hungry heart. Make our hearts hungry and increase our capacity to retain and understand and to declare these beautiful truths. I pray, Lord, that our own testimony to your keeping and preserving and equipping power would be bolstered as a result of this service today. Thank you for the assurance and consolation that's offered in your scriptures And thank you, Lord, for the ultimate payment of all of those good things of sanctification and justification itself in Jesus Christ's own blood. We thank you, Lord, that you have ransomed and redeemed us to show forth your praises. So may these words and more be on our lips this week as we leave this place glorifying you for the good work that you have begun and will surely complete for your name's sake. And it's in that holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.